welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. Our scripture meditation for worship comes from Psalm 143. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant. For no one living is righteous before you. Let us pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, hear our prayers today that we lift to you. Give ear to our pleas as we desire mercy and righteousness. You are faithful in all your ways, Lord, and so we earnestly seek you. We have fallen short and do not rightly give you the praise and glory that you deserve. No matter how our week is gone, however we're feeling today, I pray that you strengthen your saints and give us fervent worship today. Grow our faith, Lord, that we might rightly praise you. Soli Dio Gloria, and amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. The Lord is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. As we reflect on uh, Pentecost today, our lectionary readings, which are the readings that are on the front of your bulletin there, are very helpful, and they uh, point us to some significant events that have importance in the message of the day. One of our readings is in Genesis 11, where the account of the Tower of Babel is recorded. And in verse 4 of that Genesis 11, we read, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Given a casual reading of this, maybe a passerby reading, we may not think a whole lot about that passage. Um, We like to be in our own groups. We tend to gather together like-minded believers, right? Or like-minded people, people who act like us, who think like us. So what would be wrong with these people gathering together in the city like this? Why was this a bad thing? Well, we just need to go back to the creation mandate to see what God had told Adam and what subsequently then he had told all of mankind, that they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over all the earth and all the things in the earth. 
If after the flood the people had gathered together in one place to make a great name for themselves, then we can see that this was disobedient in a couple of different ways. First, man was meant to fill the earth and subdue it, which meant spreading out across the land. It meant exploring and establishing settlements. It meant that they were not to gather together in just one area, but also because they desired to make a great name for themselves, This meant that they were exalting themselves over the creator. This was idolatry. The people, not so terribly long after the flood, how many years, I guess, for sure, we're not certain, but certainly they could remember the stories that were passed down in the generations after the flood, and here they were rebelling against God and his mandate. After they had been released, after they had been redeemed from the waters over the whole face of the earth, and here they were rebelling. The story of Pentecost talks of the apostles speaking in different tongues. There were many different people from different regions and languages in Jerusalem at that time. And yet they were hearing the gospel in their own language. It was a miraculous event that detailed the amazing power of the Holy Spirit. While the apostles met and talked together, fire appeared to dance over their head like tongues of flames. Then people were so amazed at what was happening when the apostles spoke in these different languages The people thought they were drunk. Peter then rebuked them and explained the power of God and the gospel. And praise be to God for this work and display of great wonder. However, it is beneficial for us to remember why the different languages were even necessary in the first place, taking us back to Genesis 11. If the people would have believed God and obeyed, it's possible that these miraculous signs of many languages may not even have been necessary. However, that's probably unlikely. We know the sin of man, and we know how quick we are to fall from the way that we should go. So we know how much we tend towards sin, and it's probably not real likely that this would have been avoided. The temptation to gather and seek their own name was too great for the people. Today, those language and and geographical barriers are less of an impact, even, than they were before. And what do we see? We see buildings like the Burj Khalifa, formerly Burj Dubai, right? Uh, Other feats of man, seeking to gain fame and fortune, exalting himself and worshiping the creator, the creation rather than the creator. All of this reminds us of the folly of the fool and how we strive after the wind in our desire to make a name for ourselves. There's a shameless plug for Ecclesiastes there in striving after the wind. So let us turn to God and make his name known first and foremost above ourselves. May we repent of our pride and our idolatry and whatever form it's rearing its ugly head in us today. As we consider this, let us come before God in corporate prayer and confess our sins together. So as you are able, please kneel with me. Lord, Heavenly Father, Too often we exalt ourselves. Too often we take the power of the Holy Spirit for granted. Lord, humble us and remind us of our sin so that we may repent of our folly and turn and run to you, Lord. We repent of our foolish pride and our idolatry towards the things of this world. Forgive us, Father, we pray. Please take a moment to confess your own personal sins in silence. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus, and amen. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Hebrews 13 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, 
offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. People of God, hear the good news and believe. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Let us sing the doxology in response. The reading this morning, the text for the message today is from Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, and verse 8, and then chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The words of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there was from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day truly. We gather as our brethren have gathered so many, so many centuries ago, Lord, to receive your word and, and to be in, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit of God. So, Father, we ask that you would anoint our hearts and our minds, our lips today and our ears as we, as we delve into your word, as you deliver your message unto us. Lord, I pray that... Um, I would certainly not be an impediment to anything, any message, any clarity, any truth that you would have imparted today to your people. We pray it all in Jesus' holy and sacred name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Well, happy day of Pentecost. It's the fifth of the feast days for the Protestant church. And uh, as we were up this morning early, Kay and I were sitting, we have a couple chairs in front of a of a picture window, and hanging in the front of the picture window on the outside is a hummingbird feeder. So anyway, uh, kind of a happy little story, I guess. We were talking about we were talking about Pentecost. We were talking about the Holy Spirit and praying to the Holy Spirit, and and we started singing, uh, "Behold, bless the Lord." You know, we we're going to sing that at the end of the end of the service today because we've been trying to commit it to our feeble memories. And I think we've, we're pretty much there. But we started singing, Behold, bless the Lord. And uh, this hummingbird got off its perch, and it flew over to the window and turned and looked in on us while we were singing this song. And we, were just, we sat there singing, watching this bird just sit there, I mean, looking in on us. And I just, we just thought it was pretty cool. You know? so, so anyway, I wanted to share that with you all this morning. But we just received a message last week from Brother Tyler about the ascension of the Lord, the bodily ascension of the Lord into heaven. And now we come upon this fifth feast day of the church calendar year, the day of Pentecost. And we commemorate and celebrate Pentecost. And, and for those in the church who are doing the uh, summer reading, the to the word reading, I don't know if they're calling it that. But even, nonetheless, this week we spent time in, in John in the right in the sweet spot of the chapter, chapters in John, where Jesus 
gives his farewell discourse. And in John 14 through 16, he's talking about He's talking about this notion that there's going, to be, there's going to be a trading of places. And as the discourse unfolds, we begin to see more clearly the importance of the difference that the Spirit makes in the works that he shares with our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus impresses upon our confused and fearful disciples that his departure is actually a net gain. And for we, for we need two things. We need two things out of this when we really think about it. We need Jesus enthroned in glorified humanity at the Father's right hand. We need him there ruling and subduing enemies of the kingdom and certainly interceding for us. But we also need the Holy Spirit of God to accomplish what only he can do. And that's to work within us to bring about repentance and faith. We know repentance and faith is a gift from God. It's nothing that we fabricate or synthesize or, or conjure up on our own, on our own volition, but it's a gift from God. And we need also the Holy Spirit to intercede within us so that we relate to the Father in joy as his adopted children rather than in fear. And I'll refer to this during the communion time as well. Not, not abandoning the understanding of the fear of the Lord, but rather being too afraid to come before the throne of grace. Remember Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So again, I, wanna, I want you to remember this particular, I want you to remember it all, but, but this particular understanding here of one of the works of the Holy Spirit, when we do prepare this morning to come to the Lord's table, okay? I'm going to make another reference to it in a minute. So as the elders, as we consider the assignment this morning for us uh, in the context of ministering to the body of Christ on this Lord's Day morning and understanding it as Pentecost, um, I thought that it would be, I wanted to deal with the Holy Spirit of God, and so I'm going to take the next two occasions that I'm in the pulpit to talk about that. So this morning I want to talk about the Holy Spirit specifically, and then the next time, I think in two or three weeks when I'm here again, I want to talk about sanctification in particular, okay? And then we'll get back to, we'll get back to Genesis. Well, anyway, thinking about the Holy Spirit... I was thinking about what, what's important for us to, to be mindful of and to, to remember about the Holy Spirit. We, I've seen many messages and teachings and things that make reference to the Holy Spirit as the forgotten God. I think Francis Chan had one. I know Kay looked at that a, a few years ago. And I, I, as I was thinking about what's the what's what's the most maybe efficient way and effective way that I might be able to convey who the Holy Spirit is, I thought about the Eighth and Asian Creed, okay? And I want to share that with you. It's not a, real, it's not a very long uh, uh, passage here. And the Eighth and Asian Creed, it's an early Christian doctrine, and although it's probably not written by Athanasius, it's traditionally believed to have been written by Athanasius, of Alexandria, who lived in the 4th century A.D. And as many of the creeds 
purpose of many of the creeds are, this creed is uh, likely to have been written primarily to refute heresies involving the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, those heresies such as Arianism, Nestorianism, and Monophysitism. I got it out. So let me share with you the Athanasian Creed here, and I want you to do your best. I know when someone reads a, a bit of a passage here, it can, be, it can be easy for us to drift off a little bit, but I want you to hear what, uh, what this creed says, okay? And it's going to help, help form and shape our understanding of the Holy Spirit uh, as, as a member of the Trinity here. It says this, We worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Spirit is still another. But the deity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-eternal in majesty. What the Father is, the Son is, and so is the Holy Spirit. Uncreated is the Father, uncreated is the Son, uncreated is the Spirit. The Father is infinite, the Son is infinite, the Holy Spirit is infinite. Eternal is the Father, eternal is the Son, Eternal is the Spirit. And yet there are not three eternal beings, but one who is eternal. And there are not three uncreated and unlimited beings, but one who is uncreated and unlimited. Almighty is the Father. Almighty is the Son. Almighty is the Spirit. And yet there are not three almighty beings, but one who is almighty. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Spirit is Lord. And yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. As Christian truth compels us to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so little C Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten. The Son was neither made nor created, but was alone begotten of the Father. The Spirit was neither made nor created, but is proceeding from the Father and the Son. Thus there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three spirits. And in this Trinity, no one is before or after, greater or less than the other. But all three persons are in themselves, co-eternal and co-equal, and so we must worship the Trinity in unity and the one God in three persons." And that's the end of the creed there. So I'm going to uh, explain the Trinity clearly and without any, you will have no doubt what the Trin- how all this fits together. And I hope you notice the smile on my face and the tongue planted firmly in my cheek here. There's a lot of mystery here. There's a lot of, it can sound very confounding. And uh, there's, there's a lot of things that we, we aren't, really meant to understand and God does deliver those things to us that we are to understand but the secret things of God do belong to God and I honestly I've heard a lot of really um, good attempts to try to try to describe the Trinity you know like water you know three the three three states of water or whatever I mean there's a lot of I've heard it there's there was a really Pretty interesting one with light and a photon of light and all that, but you just can't get there. But this creed, I think, captures it well, and what it does capture is that is that the Holy Spirit is God, 
And as we see here, as we begin to look at the Holy Spirit this morning in our, in our brief message here, we can see that the Holy Spirit is fully divine. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself who most fully teaches the nature of the Holy Spirit. And again, we're kind of coming into that sweet spot of what, what we think of maybe as the Mount Everest of theology, the Gospel of John here in 14 verses 16 through 17 where Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So when we look at that passage, Jesus said, I'm going to send you another. And there's two, there's two words that can uh, denote another. One is allos, A-L-L-O-S, and that word is used in this particular passage in John, which means another just like the first one. Okay, Jesus says, I'm sending you another, I'm sending you an allos, one who is just like me. And of course, we read our Bibles, we know what it says in Hebrews 1 and all these things about who Christ is, that he's the exact imprint of God, the Father, and all of these things, that's what he's talking about here. The other one is heteros, which just means something that's another that is totally different. That's not what's being referred to here. Alice is being referred to. We may gather evidence for the Holy Spirit in some of the following categories, okay? One, the divine qualities of the Holy Spirit. Just the phrase alone, the Holy Spirit, is a pretty striking example, for the word holy designates the uttermost essence of God's nature. We see in John 17, verse 11, the Father referred to as the Holy Father. We see Jesus is the Holy One of God in John 6. The Spirit of God is also said to be omniscient, the Holy Spirit. In John 16, verses 12 through 13, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. We see Jesus reference himself in many using this type of language about himself, and he's using it about the Spirit of God here in in, uh, uh, Luke. I'm sorry, in John 16. The Holy Spirit is omnipotent in Luke 1:35. It says, "And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God." And, of course, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. And we had a reading this morning already from Psalm 139 during the prayer time. But verses 7 through 10 says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. We see that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He's everywhere. The works of God, a second thing to consider is the works of God that are attributed to the Holy Spirit. Naturally, we think right off the bat to Genesis 1 1 verse 2 and the Holy Spirit's involvement and his presence in creation. It says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the space, over the face of the waters. And in Job 33, verse 4, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. We see in, in 2 Peter 1, verse 21, 
that the Holy Spirit imparted the scriptures. Peter says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's the agent of the new birth. In John 3, verse 6, it says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And he's the agent of resurrection. In Romans 8, verse 11, Paul says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Another thing to consider is the equality of the Holy Spirit with God the Father and God the Son, seen often in many of the creeds, but it's certainly pervasive and, and replete in the Bible and the Word of God. I just read the Athanasian Creed, so we, we see what that's referring to. And then we see the name of God indirectly given to him, for instance, in Acts 5, verses 3, 3 through 4. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And as we continue to go along and look at the Holy Spirit as a person, we see the importance of the Spirit's work. If it wasn't for the work of the Holy Spirit, think about this. There would be no gospel, there would be no faith, there would be no church, there would be no Christianity in the world at all. So as we think about that, the gathering there, how the Lord had commanded them to gather and wait, wait for this day of Pentecost, prior to that we might think about what kind of witnesses would the disciples have been. Because really, when we look at it, when we look at the Gospels and read about them, we see fundamentally that, or as we go along, that they were never really stellar pupils. They had consistently failed to understand Christ and missed the point of his teaching so often. And how could they be expected to do better now that he is gone? Wouldn't they just assimilate back into the world and end up with a garbled, compromised, and botched message? That would be maybe the expectation. Because they all seem to kind of, once Jesus ascended into heaven, a lot of them kind of returned, turned to their business, and went about their day. Went about going back to fishing and mending nets and doing all these other things. Wouldn't they just assimilate back into the world now that the Savior was gone, now that Jesus wasn't there? No, that's not the case, because Christ sent his Holy Spirit to them to teach them all truth and protect them from error, to remind them of what they had been taught already and to reveal to them further truth. In John fourteen twenty six, Jesus said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And in John 16, verses 12 through 14, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul says, The light of the gospel shines, but the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Blind people don't respond to the stimulus of light. In John 3, verse 3, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the, test of, the Holy Spirit testifies by illuminating, by this, by this understanding of regeneration, of what he does in us. He opens blinded eyes. He restores spiritual vision. He enables sinners to see that the gospel is indeed God's truth. That scripture is indeed God's word and Christ is God's son. If you are here this morning and you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit has been in your head. If you, the, the, the day you made a profession of faith in Christ, you understand that the Holy Spirit has been in you. That he has had, a, had his way with you. That he has done, a, done his perfect work in you. To put you in that position to, to, to all of a sudden respond to the light of the gospel. And certainly it's not for us to think that we can prove the truth of Christianity by our own arguments. That's an important statement. We cannot prove the truth of Christianity by our own arguments. Nobody can prove the truth of Christianity except the Holy Spirit by his own almighty work of renewing a blinded heart. It's the sovereign prerogative of Christ's spirit to convince men's consciences of truth of Christ's gospel. And Christ's human witnesses must learn to ground their hopes of success not on clever presentation of the truth by man, but on powerful demonstration of truth by the spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, Paul, the apostle, reminds us. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Have you ever had an encounter with a non-believer and thought, man, that didn't go as I planned it to go. It went better. That has happened. I mean, I've, I've experienced that. I've had it go the other way, too. Just, boy, this, this was an, seemed like an abject failure here. But the Holy Spirit is the one who, who changes hearts. And that doesn't deter us from evangelizing. Reformed people, Calvinists, whatever, we get, we get that thrown at us constantly. That we, we shy away from or don't, don't put much importance on evangelizing because God has already elected and chosen whom he's going to call. Well, we know that's not true. So as we think about the Holy Spirit, it's easy to think about the Spirit's work in our life, but what is the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit of God? The primary purpose, His primary work. 
John said in, in chapter 16, verses 13 through 14, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And in John 15, verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The work of the Holy Spirit is what, then? Is to primarily glorify Christ. All the other works of the Holy Spirit that might be mentioned, that we can look at, are included in this one overriding purpose, to bring glory to the Son of God. And how specifically does the Holy Spirit glorify Christ? Well, he does this by teaching about him in Scripture. We saw the the passage in Peter talking about how the the Holy Spirit delivers, has delivered the Word of God to us through, through the men inspired to write the Word of God. He does it by drawing men and women to saving faith in Christ. Again, opening blind eyes and fogging minds to understand what they're seeing and then gently convicting them to come to the place their faith of their faith in, and put their faith in the Savior. Without this work, there would not be one single Christian in the world. By means of it, the Holy Spirit saves and glorifies the Lord Jesus. And the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus by reproducing his character in believers. And again, I'm going to delve deeper into this when we talk about sanctification. But first, he leads us to greater victory over ourselves and over our sin. And secondly, he intercedes for us in prayer and teaches us to pray. And thirdly, he reveals God's will for our lives and enables us to walk in it. These are important things to understand in our life and in our walk as Christians. I always remember the, the, the Amy Carmichael prayer that I have uh, adopted, adapted, and you know, stolen, whatever. Often, as I pray to God, Lord, Harden me against myself. The Holy Spirit directs Christ's followers in the Christian service and sustains us in it. The Holy Spirit calls men and women into specific lines of work and goes with them as they do it. In Acts 13, 2 through 4, Paul's, it, it, here's the passage here in 2 through 4. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. For the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, verse 4 now, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So we see that Christ has given us his spirit. That he has, he, that the spirit of God was delivered on, on the day of Pentecost. That it was a visible thing that has transcended just a visible, a visible notion and understanding to this thing we call faith. That we, we continue the legacy of what happened so many, so many centuries ago, millennia ago now, when the Holy Spirit came on that day in Pentecost. And one of the things, uh, perhaps, I, I want to say this just while I'm thinking of it, because I, I don't know if I'm going to say it in a minute here, but perhaps you saw the, the title of the, today's sermon, and uh, non relinquum vos orfanos. I know some folks in here know what it is. Uh, 
I know Ava does because I know some. There's some. We have folks in here who have studied Latin. I'm not one of them, but uh, I have studied Google Translate and uh, <laughs> and put it in there. But I. But it just means Jesus said, "I will not leave you as orphans." And what a, what a profound thing to consider and to understand that our Lord Jesus Christ, even though he bodily ascended into heaven, he he told he told the disciples that I'm not going to leave you as orphans. And that's so important. Again, we have this, uh, there, there's, a, there's another thread that's been woven in, I hope, in this message clearly, that we are not, we are not alone, that we haven't been abandoned, that we are, we are not orphans. And so thinking about this and the Holy Spirit of God, there's one aspect that um, I, I wanted to consider here just for a moment was the understanding and the truth of being united with Christ, this union with Christ. And union with Christ is not a peripheral matter. It's not a peripheral matter in biblical theology, although often it's widely neglected. And union with Christ is a function and a work of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to quote some some men um, who are holding me up this morning. One James Stewart said, calls the union with Christ the heart of Paul's religion. John Murray, the theologian from Westminster, says this, Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. And A.W. Pink said, emphatically states this, he said, The subject of spiritual union is the most important, the most profound, and yet the most blessed of any that is set forth in the sacred scriptures, and yet, sad to say, there is hardly any which is now more generally neglected. The very expression spiritual union is unknown in most professing, professing Christian circles. And even where it is employed, it is given such a protracted meaning as to take in only a fragment of this precious truth. So I'm not here to indict folks in this room or anything, but we, we can kind of understand what's being said here. This biblical theme of union with Christ is indispensable for understanding the work of the Holy Spirit and applying the benefits of the atonement of the Christian. And as with most New Testament teachings, the seed of this doctrine are in the recorded words of Jesus, often using various metaphors to convey the truth. In John, again, we're in John a lot, and there's a good reason for that. And those of you who read that this week uh, were probably anticipating this. But in John chapter 15, verse 4, 5, familiar verse, verses for us, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And certainly in the high priestly prayer that John recorded for us, just an absolutely magnificent portion of Scripture in John chapter 17, we see this union discussed explicitly by our Lord as he communes with the Father, as he speaks to the Father, and we are privy to this. In verses 20 through 21 and in verse 23, Jesus said this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Paul, our brother Paul, used the terms in him, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, or a term extremely close to that, in his writings, 164 times. Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In 1 Corinthians 7.22, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant, as a freedman of the Lord, Likewise, he who is free when he called is a bondservant of Christ. In Ephesians 2, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And in assurance of the resurrection in Romans 6, verse 5, for we have been united with him in death like in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And Paul gives testimony to his own experience and reality in Galatians 2.20. For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. How does this union come about? How is it executed? What is there about this union with Christ? Well, one, we know it's a living relationship. That's very important for us. It's the source of divine power within Christians. We, we, we heard earlier from Scripture, you can do nothing apart from me. Or apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, Paul said in, in Philippians 4, he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the other thing about this union that's very vital and very important is that it's permanent. Nobody takes it. The devil doesn't take it. We don't give it up. Nobody steals it from us. And I know we know that. So how does it happen that we who are estranged from God and facing certain condemnation should happen to enter a relationship with God in which we become sons and daughters of God? How does it happen that we who were spiritually dead should be made alive? That we who were powerless and without strength should be made strong? That we who are made of dust should live forever. Well, we know what the answer is, and we know the answer is the Holy Spirit of God. And only as the Spirit of Christ unites us to Christ do these truths become realities in our individual experiences. And I want to close the message today with these general questions. Have you ever wondered why our brand of Christianity does not mirror that of the early church? Do you find that society, its philosophy and reasoning, has more influence on your ethical beliefs than the Bible does? Do you ever just hunger and thirst for an authentic faith that is similar to that in the book of Acts? Have you ever grown tired of, or is there anything more wearisome than pretending? Those questions are general, and and, um, I think there's something to contemplate and think about. Because I've asked this question before, too. I've asked it of myself almost every day, even. 
that if you believe these things, if you believe what is said to be true, unviolated, from God, then why don't we live like that? Why do we doubt? Why do we cower? Why are we lazy? Why do we look for another way? Why do we allow the the godless and impotent government to, to dictate to us how we should think and how we should act? If we believe, if we believe what this book says here, if we believe what's in here, and we believe what the Holy Spirit of God has done within us, why do we fall so short so often? The response I came up with to these general questions, again, I have stolen from the Apostle Paul. In Romans 12, very familiar, verse 1 and 2, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we are yours. You have seen it, seen to it. You alone have accomplished our salvation. We thank you. Lord, you have gifted each believer with qualities to be utilized for your church. To further your kingdom, to bring you glory. Let us be faithful, let us be obedient, let us be submissive, let us be humble, let us be your light in this dark world. And Lord, as much as it must please you to see us dutifully exercise the gifts you have bestowed upon us, how much more pleased must you be to see the fruit of your spirit manifested in the lives of your people. Lord, let us love truly. Let us exhibit joy and be truly joyful. Lord, may we be patient. Let kindness translate into goodness. Strengthen our faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Lord Jesus, have, have us to crucify the flesh and its sinful passions and desires. Lord, let us keep in step with the Spirit always and forever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.